Okay, why don't we uh, stand together and let's read from 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. And we're going to read to verse 18. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, there's uh, some pretty profound truths in here in terms of different categories of life. I pray, God, that you give me clarity to be able to... to uh, proclaim these things with accuracy that is pleasing to you and that we would walk away from this message today encouraged to uh, live out our faith in a more practical and applicable way. Maybe we receive some sort of guidance and tools about how to speak to others about our faith and, and uh, also to learn that uh, about another category of life, Lord, which is unjust suffering. Sometimes life just isn't fair, and that's the way we seem it, but there are blessings in that when we, when we do what is right in your eyes. So we pray, God, for our time together, and that you strengthen us and establish us and convict us where necessary. In Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning and welcome back to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, let's waste no time uh, waggling on the T and jump right in. If you look at verse 13, uh, Peter starts off with a question. He says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Now, Peter's question, of course, comes in continuation of what he just previously taught in verses 8 to 12. And if you were here last week, you remember the content of that message. Peter's main point was that there's a direct correlation between one's willingness to embrace God's way and be obedient to Him and the present blessings that one would receive from God in this lifetime. There's a direct cor correlation between the two. And these correlations were really an issue of one's character. If one would embrace certain character traits, they would receive blessings in this lifetime. And so the character traits were uh, people who sought to be harmonious, which were pursuers of peace. If people did that, life would go better for them. If people were chose to be compassionate and kind and not proud but humble, life would go well for them. But more, probably of, of key significance was this idea of being non-retaliatory. If one was not going to uh, give insult back for insult, and one was, not, one was willing not to return evil for evil, there would be blessings that would come from God in one's life. So with this in mind then, Peter continues in verse 13 by saying, if you live this way, who is there to harm you? Who is there to harm you? And the answer, of course, is rhetorical in nature. 
It should be nobody. If you adopt these virtues in Christian character, you should get along with, well with other people and things should go well for you. But Peter was also a realist and recognized that even though we should not be persecuted and people shouldn't be hostile with character traits such as that, that we live in a world in which Christians are still the targets of um, hostility. And so we pick this up in verse 14. He says, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Notice here in verse 14 what you will receive from God if you suffer for the sake of Christ. It's a blessing. If you suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Notice there's not there the promise of divine protection. There's not the promise of divine removal from the situation. It's a promise of blessing. Now this is a blessing here that probably is not an effect of bringing happiness or joy, because not all trials are, are, are wonderful in the midst of them. But this, is, this blessing probably has more to do with honor and privilege. Now why? Well, because it's proof that you're connected to Jesus Christ. If you're suffering for righteousness, that means you're standing up for Jesus Christ, and, you, and so you look like Him, and so you're getting persecuted as a result of it. So you're blessed by God because it's proof, actually, that you are a Christian now, and you're not part of the world. And this, a result of this connection, then, also is a promise of a, an eternal reward. An eternal reward. Consider Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. On the PowerPoint, I have it up here. He says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Sounds exactly like verse 14 here. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Probably one of the greatest examples of this was the, the apostles, actually, in Acts chapter 5 and verse 40. This is after they were told to basically stop proclaiming the name of Christ and so on. And they were threatened that they were going to be hurt if they did so. And look at the response of the apostles in the application of Matthew chapter 5 after being flogged by the Sanhedrin. It says, oh, where'd it go? It's not up there. Oh, that's too bad. Let me read it to you. I think that's the first time in five years I've missed a PowerPoint. I'll read from Acts chapter 5, verse 40. They took his advice, this being Gamaliel's advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they released them. So they, the apostles, went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. They considered, they were rejoicing, not in the beating, but rejoicing in the fact that they've been considered worthy to suffer in his name. It's important, I think, for us that we recognize these truths, especially in the culture where we're going to be seeing increasing persecution for being Christians. Because our natural thoughts, I think, in the midst of hostility would be something like this. God, where are you? Aren't you going to rescue me? Have you abandoned me? Don't you see what I'm going through? And the right attitude we're to take from Peter here, and the right understanding is actually, 
listen, men and women, you're actually blessed if you receive that treatment. So suffering in this sense then must be viewed as an opportunity to receive spiritual blessings, not an excuse to compromise our faith before a hostile world. Now I don't know about you, but when I'm in the midst of being ridiculed or persecuted for the sake of Christ, not only do I forget that I'm blessed for this, but my tendency actually is to either get aggressive with people in that way, or maybe even fear their intimidation and start to cower. But as we read verses 15 and 16, Peter actually warns against both those kinds of behavior and actually instructs us to take a very different approach. And we'll pick this up in verse 15. He says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. The first thing that Peter wants us to do here when we go to defend our faith is actually sanctify Christ in our hearts. You notice that in the beginning of verse uh, 15. What does it mean to sanctify Christ in your heart? Well, the word sanctify means to set apart something or to consecrate it for service or to make it holy. So the first step that Peter tells you and I to do in responding to those who are hostile towards us is we're to set apart or consecrate Christ in our own minds. I think in English what he's really saying is this. In times when we are being persecuted for our faith, we, may, we need to make him the sole object of our focus in that time. There will be lots of emotions playing in that moment, but we need to make him the sole object of our focus. And we need to set him apart in terms of where our loyalty is going to lie in those moments. Now you might do this in the form of a prayer, um, in which you pray to the Lord and, and you remember him in those ways. Or it might be a portion of scripture that is, you've memorized will help you uh, recapture your mind in those moments to set him apart. But whatever the case may be and how you go about that, that is the first step we need to take. And we need to do this so that we respond properly and so that our flesh doesn't take over and make the worst of the situation, which we can often do. So Peter also highlights then three character traits that we're to exhibit in ourselves when we defend our faith. He has here we need to do it with gentleness, we need to do it with reverence, we need to do it in good conscience. Now gentleness, uh, really in the Greek word, uh, in the Greek language, gentleness means to be meek and mild. Meek and mild. Now, it doesn't mean that we're to water down the truth to make it palatable for people listening. So it's not that. It really has to do with the way in which you present the truth. It's your tone and the choice of words you use. So you're meek and mild in the way you do that. It's, the, it's your character and the way you present it. So really, the, the command here is not to be dominant and overbearing and aggressive in the defense of our faith. He also tells us to be reverent. Well, the word reverent, you, some of you might even have the translation respect in there. Does anyone have respect as opposed to reverence? Okay, two people, three people, okay. That's another translation for reverence, is to respect someone. It often is the same word for fear, to be in awe of someone as well. And not that you're to be in awe of them as soon as you think there's some wonderful person, but if you think of awe of someone, it means that you've, you've elevated them. And so as a Christian, we're to see other people as having value in Christ's eyes. 
They're, 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 that person is also a person created in the image of God, and so they're to be treated as such. So we're to present the gospel in a way that maintains the respect of the individual. So when you look at these words in the application then, to do it in gentleness and reverence, here, let me give you an example of what, what not to say versus what you could say. If you're, def if you're defending your faith and someone's talking to you, you don't say something like this, man, I can't believe you think that, that is so stupid, why would anyone think that way, don't you have a brain in your head? Like that kind of response would be not a good idea. More, but if you said something like this, you know what, that's an interesting thought, I can see why you think like that, but have you considered? Right? <laughs> one maintains respect of the individual, one is not overbearing, and one is just flat out terms for fighting. But we're also to do it in good conscience. We're to do this in good conscience. Now, don't confuse conscience, your conscience with the voice of God. See, every single person has a conscience directing them, but not everybody has the voice of God directing them and speaking to them. The, the, the definition of conscience, uh, not, not using Webster's Dictionary, but just in the Greek original language, is, is the inward moral impression of one's actions and principles. It's the inward moral impression of one's actions and principles. So in other words, in English, this is what for us distinguishes for us what we believe to be right and wrong. Everybody has a, an understanding in their own head of what is right and wrong morally and ethically. And so the conscious then affirms what we think is right behavior and it condemns us in what we think is wrong or sinful behavior. Okay? Now for those of us who are Christians, it's easy because as the Word of God comes into our lives, our, it changes the way we view life and that becomes the, the marker for what's right and wrong. But when you're not a Christian, um, the conscience is that which you think is right and wrong and you just go from there. Ironically, every non-Christian person, and I used to be one, uh, we all condemn ourselves in our, in our own conscience. We're all hypocritical in our own consciousness. Romans speaks of this because we actually do the very things that we, uh, that we actually believe are not good for us. And so God can use that as a measure of judgment in the end days. But here's the point from Peter in terms of how we defend our faith. If we choose to live our lives on a day-to-day -day basis in obedience to Christ, and we choose to be gentle and respectful in the way we proclaim the gospel, then we can live with a pure and clean conscience, knowing that we are representing Christ as He intended us. And even if unbelievers respond to us negatively, which they often do, uh, then we're okay because our conscience is not defiled. However, if we aren't gentle, we're not respectful, and we, uh, we live our lives in, in, the, in the conduct in sort of hypocritical ways, then of course our conscience will condemn us when we go to present the gospel. Now I have to admit, this is one area in my life that I've had to learn to mature in. There's been times in my past that I wasn't so gracious and gentle in my conversations with other people, and I actually have quite a few regrets. Now these are primarily in my early days of being a Christian and I've learned my lessons. But I want to share with you some of my practical experiences uh, and some of the key things and what I've learned in terms of how I present truth now. These are things I never used to understand and never used to do that I understand now. And these, uh, there's nothing in the Bible uh, that, uh, that I know of that speaks of these three categories. 
uh, particularly, but these are just from life experience and you'll think you'll see the value of them. Probably the first thing that changed the way I did evangelism with people and spoke about truth was when I understood the nature and character of God. It was a shift when I understood the true nature and character of God. In my early years, I probably, for, for, for many reasons, I kind of would have described God probably more as like maybe like a judge. Probably, some of you might re relate to that. If I were to ask you, who do you think God is? You might think, well, he's kind of like a judge. And you'll know by the way you live. If you live in condemnation a lot and always beat yourself up, that's because you think God is primarily judge. <laughs> okay? I'm in Kentucky. I'm uh, at this uh, Asbury Seminary. I'm visiting campus. I get invited to a man's house named Dennis Kinlaw. Dennis Kinlaw is the closest person I've ever met to probably the Apostle Paul in my life. He was about 90 years old at the time. He had a library on campus named after him and he's written many books and passed it for many years. And he was going deaf and he, he kind of yelled at me. He goes, Andy, do you know who God is? And I'm like, oh boy, this guy's a, guy a professor, pastor, library named after him and I'm this like chump. Like in sitting in his chair, I'm like, I don't know how to answer this. I think I know what to say, but I don't know what to say. And he goes, God is love. And he goes, do you understand what I mean? And I'm like, I think so. He's like, that's, what, that's who he is, not what he does. He says, do you understand the difference? And I'm like, I think so. And he went on to explain it. See, all of God's attributes, his, his, like his, um, all of his attributes, him being holy, his mercy, his grace, even his judgment, stems out of the character of love. So when he judges you, it comes from a place of love. When he extends mercy, it comes from a place of love, because that's his nature. That completely changed my, 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 the way I would approach people in evangelism. Because if God is love, he's looking at these people with love. So for me to come on aggressive to them and, and act like a judge in their life, like don't you understand this and don't you think this and you're an idiot for not thinking that, I'm actually not representing God in the way I defend the truth. So when he, when he told me that God is love and that was the foundation of who he is and everything stems out of that, that man, that sure shaped the way I viewed people. It changed the way I viewed people and the way I interacted with them because I came at them with love the same way he would. So my language and my tone automatically changed by understanding the character of God. Second, because of his love then, I learned that the, about the intrinsic value that each person has. There's an intrinsic value that every single individual has because of the fact that God loves them and He created them to be in their image. You see, we often forget in our debates of people and our conversations that the cross was for them as well as it was for us. And we used to think they, the same way they did. And we used to believe the same things they did. But now we don't. And it's only because of God's grace that we know that now. But when you view people with intrinsic value and you see them that the cross was for them and that God loves them equally to the, He does us, and then again, that should change the way you should relate to people. And the third thing I've learned in practical experience is this, is that even though people present to you that their number, their number one objections are primarily factual, so they'll say, I don't believe the Bible's true, it's, a, you know, it's an old-fashioned book, I don't believe that, you know, if you play the game of telephone and you, and, you, and you play this game, eventually the message is always different at the end than it is at the beginning. So you're telling me over 2,000 years that the Bible still can be trusted today because of that? And they go on all these tangents and, 
have archaeological fact, uh, you know, fights, and all sorts of stuff. I've learned in my life that factual doubts are not the primary reason why people don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you dig deep enough, virtually every single person's issue is emotional. They've been hurt by somebody in their past. They were hurt at five years old by somebody in church. They were hurt by their parents who went to church and proclaimed all these truths and then were, they lived a different life under the home. Maybe they were abused by a, a, a Christian worker in church or some kind of thing. Or they had an experience uh, on a missions trip or a, a, like another kind of church service in which they were just completely condemned. I've yet to, hard, I've hardly ever met anyone, in fact I've never met anyone, but I know they exist, that factual doubts has been their main issue. Their issue is always emotional pain. And so if we can come alongside people in evangelism, when you're discussing truth, the truth becomes the argument, the fighting point. But if you can dig deeper than that and, and, and see beyond those things and understand that the pain is primarily emotional and come alongside them, then that is powerful. Especially when people say, things when they talk about how they were hurt often they're hurt in ways that aren't Christ's way anyway these were not God's ways they'll, they'll, they'll describe the church or people that were spoken to and when I listen to the things I'm like that's not God that's not how Jesus functions so I never apologize to people when they say, uh, they say negative things against the church and, or against Christ and they're true I say, I'll never defend the church in that way I'll say you know what you're right I agree with you that is not the way God thinks and that is not the way Christianity is supposed to be lived out. I come alongside them but then help them see truth and what God is really like. So again, understanding the nature of God will change the way you relate to people. Understanding you start from a position of love. Understanding the intrinsic value that each person has to God. And understanding the doubts that you're having with people are pri primarily emotional and not factual. And that will move you hopefully through being more gentle, more respectful, and keeping a good conscience. So getting back to our text then, notice at the end of verse 16, what the intended result is to be when we as believers choose to adopt these three attitudes in our evangelism. He says here in the end of 16, um, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. When we adopt these principles of character, it leads those who persecute us to be put to shame. Now, I don't think what Peter's saying here is that you're going to embarrass them and make them feel like a bunch of idiots and stupid for saying, for like, you know, coming at you with aggression. As if shame in itself is something good to experience. I think what he's saying here is when an unbeliever intentionally slanders and ridicules you, and then you respond with kindness, it puts us to shame because it makes them rethink the gospel. Because they're thinking, how can a person who I'm constantly ridiculing and slandering respond still to me in these ways? So our actions and the way we, we respond makes them think, man, like maybe there is something to this gospel. So they can be put into shame because they know they should have been ultimately retaliated against for the way they treated us, but we don't respond in that way. And so they rethink what it is to be a Christian. I think it's Romans 12, 20. It speaks about this in a way. He says, if, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, be overcome evil, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. 
to heap burning coals on someone's head in the ancient culture was someone would do that when they wanted to show that they felt bad about something or a morser felt guilty. So there's a way of expressing themselves in that way. There's something in that. So he's saying if you are kind and don't slander people who slander you back, it's like putting coals in their head. You put them to shame because they recognize over time that, hey, this, this is crazy that I'm doing this because there's been, they've not been retaliatory. Maybe there's something to this gospel message. So Peter goes on then to explain in verse 17 and 18 why this needs to be our response. He says, For it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring to us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. What Peter's saying here is this. As believers, we're not to be discouraged or surprised by this kind of suffering. When we're suffering unjustly for standing up for Christ, we're not to be surprised by this. Because this is the essence, this is the essence of suffering that Christ himself experienced. This was this type of unjust experience that Christ himself endured. And he highlights three aspects of the gospel that I don't want you to miss. The first one is that Christ died for sins once for all. Christ died for sins once for all. It's important to always have this at the forefront of our minds for the reason why Jesus had to die and go to the cross. His life wasn't taken from him because of his own sin in his own life, but it was for yours and mine. And this issue of sin, Peter makes clear, is a universal problem. Notice he says Christ died once for all. All. All humanity. All mankind. From God's point of view, there's no such thing as those good people over there and those bad people over there. He's saying Christ died for every single person because every single person has sin in their life. We're going to come back to that in a second. But the second thing then in terms of this unjust suffering, is that he says here that he was just, but he died for the unjust. He was, it, was the, it was once for all the just for the unjust. You know, when Jesus walked the earth, we know this, that in his entire lifetime, he never spoke any words, had any thoughts, or behaved in any way that did not please God or meet his standards. He lived out life perfectly according to God, how God wanted him to. And in chapter 2, verse 22, Peter's already described Jesus in this way. He says, He was one who committed no sin, and nor, deceit was any, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So here's this righteous, perfectly holy guy, never spoken a bad word, never thought of a mean thing, never did anything to offend anyone in any way in terms of the way he insulted anyone with his behavior. Yet despite his perfection, was willing to substitute his life for you and I as imperfect people. The perfect substituted for the imperfect. So that the penalty due to us for our sin would be paid by Him. But you want to talk about what's fair in life? And what's not fair? It wasn't fair that a totally innocent man had to die for people like you and I who are filled, full of guilt and full of sin. Which leads to the third aspect of the Gospel. So why did He do this in the first place? Well, he says that here that he might bring us to God. So that he might bring us to God. You know, the Bible is clear that sin separates us from God. So the result then is that no one actually has a relationship with him based on our own morality and merit. So something has to be done 
in order to mend that broken relationship and draw us closer to Him. Something has, that something that needs to be accomplished has to be accomplished by a someone. So Jesus died on the cross to bear our sins so that if we exercise our faith and put our trust in Him, we would be made right with God and that relationship would be healed and brought back to proper restoration. There's no rituals, there's no baptisms, there's no communion services, there's no um, moral codes we can follow to be made right with God. It purely comes through faith in Jesus Christ based on His merits of what He did on the cross. And Romans 5, 1 and 2 is a beautiful verse. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the peace comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, not things that we try to do that are good, not through rituals. And it says, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. So Peter's main point, don't forget it now, was just as Christ was favored by God when he endured unjust suffering for our salvation, we are also blessed by God when we follow in Christ's footsteps and endure unjust suffering as well. So Christ is favored by God, he's blessed by God, but he has to endure unjust suffering to bring us to the Lord, because we can't do it without him. We can't mend that relationship without Christ. As so therefore, you and I have to follow in his footsteps and endure unjust suffering as well for the sake of the gospel message. And why? Because we might, by the way we respond in those situations, bring others to Christ as well. We might do that. That's the example of we just learned uh, just recently about wives and husband relationships. If you're living with a husband who's disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. If you have a non-believing husband and, he's, and he's, a, he's a jerk to live with, there's a way in which you can live to win him to Christ. And going back to chapter 2 of uh, verse 11, keep your behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers may be because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. This idea that if they observe your behavior, that one day they'll come to know Christ because they watch how you respond in the midst of hostility. We endure unjust suffering and don't retaliate because that's the model that Christ laid before us and what he did for us. But I want to conclude our time together by speaking more in depth about the gospel message. You know, he says here, you have to always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Now, we're to always be ready. You and I, a few months ago, did an exercise in church where I took you to Book of Acts and we walked through Paul's life and we noticed his testimony had three parts to it. Life before Christ, life at the cross, and life after the cross. And we practiced writing our testimonies out, and some people in church gave their testimonies here as a means of practicing that. But I want to give you some practical advice on how to even make it simpler and how to defend your faith in a very simplistic way. And I'm going to take you back to kindergarten. <laughs> it's called, I'm going to call it the ABCDs of the Christian faith. Okay? ABCDs. And I'm actually going to, for the next year, Review these on a regular basis so that it's so ingrained in your head that when you get in a conversation, when nerves start to come up and adrenaline starts to flow and you want to get aggressive or even cower, that this comes right to your mind and you have this clear in your thought process. 
It's my job to teach you how to defend your faith. And uh, so we are going to do that now. And we're going to go back to the three points of the gospel that we just looked. Christ died for sins once for all. The, uh, the just for the unjust, so they might bring us to God. All right, so here's the first A. The ABCD defense. A, acknowledge your sin. When you're in conversations with people, you have to help them understand that you, as well as they, at some point have to acknowledge your sin before God. They have to. Remember, Christ died for sins once for all. He died for sins. Therefore, there has to be acknowledgement that you and I are sinners. And in your defense of the gospel, you have to help them see if they, that they need to acknowledge that in the presence of God. Now, this is a culturally sensitive issue because in our culture, everyone's a good person and truth is relative. Those are the two issues our culture faces, right? We're all good people. Truth is relative. So what we're afraid of is being intolerant. That's our biggest fear. We don't want to be accused of intolerant and judgmental. Here's the thing, church. The gospel is offensive. The gospel is offensive. You are not going to sugarcoat your way around that. And that is not your issue. The way you present it can be offensive, but the truth contained in it is offensive. You're going to have to help that person see, just like you had to acknowledge, that you, had, you have sin in your life that you had to deal with. I'll give you one practical tool on how to do this. And some of you know this already. We can often get into like, arguments about what is morally acceptable and what is morally right. Because it could be, you know, if you, you know, do you think this is wrong? Do you think this is right? Don't get in those fights. If you help people understand back to God's character that he's loved, you, this is a pretty easy way to have a conversation. When Jesus was approached and said, what's the greatest commandment? In Matthew 22, he said, Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. In your, in your conversation with someone, if you say this, you know, when Jesus was asked this question, what's the greatest commandment? What's the, most, the highest moral, moral ethical code we have to live with? He just says you have to love him with your whole heart and love your neighbor. Say, I won't even talk about how you love God. Let's just talk about how you love your neighbor. Have you ever in your life, like, you know, been in a place where uh, you've had to, you find yourself in gossiping about someone? And the person will always have to say, yeah. And I say, I know I've had, I'm sure you've had too. Just that alone shows you then that we've never fulfilled love the way God demanded. Just in the area of love alone, loving your neighbor, if you've gossiped about someone, you fail to reach God's standard. If you ever in your life told a lie about anything, about, right, you fail to reach God's standard. It's, just, it's very simple. It's very simple. I had a woman in my gym one time who told me that she, she basically never sinned. <laughs> and I was shocked because most people, I've never heard anyone say that. And I didn't pursue it much farther because I could tell she was getting quite like, upset with everything. But this is a woman that used Jesus Christ in my gym so much as a swear word when things got tough that we actually had a joke that we're going to put a swear jar on the counter just for her alone. All I had to help her to do is say, you know, if what the first commandment is, one of the first commandments is not to take the Lord God's name in vain. <laughs> not to use it in an empty, worthless way. Just on that alone, you, you, you need the cross, Christ. Just on that one thing alone. Forget everything else in your life. So again, knowing God's character, starting with the position of love, knowing that uh, His standard for, for reaching heaven is how we love Him and love others. 
we can help people see that instead of getting in a fight about factual information about what's morally right and what's morally true, start from the position that they have failed to love their neighbor in some kind of way. They may disagree with you, they might still not be, not be, be uh, frustrated with you, but we have to bring them to a place where they acknowledge their sin. That's why Jesus' first words in Mark chapter 1, verse 15 was repent. Why would he tell people to do that if they had no sin in their life? These are Israelites he's talking to who had the law of God. And his first word is repent out of his mouth in his ministry. Okay, B. You have to believe Jesus did something about it. <laughs> if you acknowledge your sin, you have to, you, you're, that you're a sinner, you have to now believe that Jesus did, Jesus did something about it. So what did he do? The just died for the unjust. He took your sin and he paid the penalty on the cross so that judgment didn't have to fall in your life. The substitution was necessary so that God's judgment and wrath didn't have to fall in your, that person's life. So I help that person understand, yes, you've acknowledged your sin, but Christ loves you enough to do something about it, and you have to believe that truth. See, you need to confess then. You have to confess. Confession means that you own your sin before God with no excuses. So often in relationships, they'll say, have you done something wrong against you know, this person? They'll say, yeah, but if they hadn't done this and they hadn't said that, I wouldn't have done this. That's not how confession works with God. You don't give a yeah, but list about what the other person has done to hurt you. Um, you own your sin with no excuses before God, regardless of what, how anyone's treated you, what anyone's ever done to you. And if you want to know what that is, it's what you're known for. What are you primarily known for in your life? What would God say that you're known for? Is it anger? Is it drunkenness? Is it adultery? Is it unforgiveness? Are you a liar? Are you a gossiper? Like whatever it may be, what are you primarily known for? And in my experience, and I know when Dan's in Pine Ridge too, this is often where the rubber hits the road. When Dan and I get into conversations, and they, we can get through A and B, no problem, but usually where the rubber hits the road is to say, you need to confess your sin. At that point, the conversation gets very uncomfortable. People leave the room or change the subject. Because at that point now, you have to admit to God, in the presence of God, that there's something wrong that needs forgiving. Don't ever say this to anybody. If you just uh, do the sinner's prayer and ask him into your heart, you'll be forgiven. You don't, there's no such place in the Bible as doing the sinner's prayer. It does not exist in the scriptures. Don't ask him into your heart. Ask him into your heart for what? You have to understand what you're doing here is this guy took your sin on the cross and bled a bloody death to pay for it. Just ask him into your heart isn't gonna suffice. That means nothing. You have to own your sin and recognize what he died for. And finally, the D, you dedicate your life to him. People often forget this. There's two deaths in Christianity. There's two deaths in Christianity. One, him for you, and two, you for him. There's two deaths in Christianity. This is the part that I think our North American church has done a bad job in. We've forgotten that we have to live in relationship with the Lord that reflects that we love Him back the way He loved us. 
And this is very interesting. Very interesting. I learned this just this week. I'm going to ask you to speak out loud. Okay? So, in the Bible, God is given two terms. There's more than two terms, but there's one is Savior and one is Lord. Savior and Lord. Which do you think occurs more in the scriptures? The word Savior or the word Lord? Pardon? Okay, you're right. Guess what the ratio is, uh, Lord to Savior ratio. How many times versus how many times? Ten to one. Ten to one? Anything else? Hundred to one? The the word Savior occurs 64 times in Scripture. 64 times in Scripture. The the word Savior does. The word Lord, 1900. 1900 times Lord, 64 Savior. Do you understand what the Christian life's about? If He is Lord in your life, that means He is like ruler over you. You are a subject to him. You're a slave of this master. You, the question is, you don't have this thought mind, I'm just going to live life however I want and just go willy-nilly. You're like, Jesus, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to respond? How do you want me to live? Because you are Lord. 1900 times versus 64. Do you understand? The D, you ded- we dedicate our lives to him in every aspect of our lives. Because of his deep love for us. He's not a dictator. He's not a judge. Although those things, although judge is part of his character. He only does that though when it's needed. That's his last straw. Again, this is important. We come to the defender of our truths with gentleness. Good conscience. And reverence for the people we're talking to. But we have to defend the gospel in this way. We have to help them acknowledge their sin in their life. We have to help them believe that Jesus did something about it. We need to lead them to confession. Which means they own their sin. That one guy I know took one hour. One hour to confess his sin in an office. That guy understands sin. And dedicate our life. He died for us and we died for him. You have to walk people through that. And I will be asking you to recite to me over the next year on sporadic occasions. Tell me the ABCDs of your Christian defense. When you speak in those ways, though, you can do it with gentleness and in a loving, respectful way. After the service, I'm going to wait up front here I'm wondering if some of you in this church for the first time have finally understood the gospel message. Some of you understood this well a long time ago, but some of you may have not understood the gospel. If you haven't understood the gospel, this is your first time understanding that you probably aren't rightly related to God. I will wait up here for you after service and we can pray together. And we can, uh, and we can lead you to the Lord right here this morning. If the Holy Spirit's convicted you of this, don't ignore that uh, calling in your life right now. Take that word seriously. 
He's a loving God who wants to embrace you, so don't miss the opportunity. I'll give you three lessons to finish off the sermon. When believers are persecuted for the name of Christ, they are blessed. Verse 14, Matthew chapter 5, and verse 17. It says, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right. Again, this is a big thing. We're not to think that God will come to our rescue when we're facing hostility or protect us in any kind of crazy way. Not that he can't. I think of Peter in jail. Remember Peter in jail and the, the church prayed for him and he was rescued. But eventually Peter died for his faith. So it's not that God can't do that, but he's unlikely going to do that. Because it's a blessing when we follow in the footsteps of Christ and suffer that way. Our reward will be great in heaven. Secondly, in sharing the gospel, we need to be gentle, respectful, and maintain a pure conscience. Again, I wish I could take back many of my conversations in the past. I would do it so differently and all over again. And I just uh, pray I'd never destroyed someone's... Um, uh, trust in, in Christ because of it, but God can work beyond my mistakes. But again, using the, the principles I taught you before about remembering the character of God, the intrinsic value of people, and that most doubts are emotional should help you in this. And finally, believers are not to be surprised or feel abandoned when suffering unjustly, as they're simply following in Christ's footsteps. Similar to lesson one. You're not to feel surprised or abandoned when suffering unjustly. You're just patterning yourselves after the life of Christ.